Welcome to the Digital Forester Podcast, where we talk to foresters about how they are using digital technologies in their day-to-day forestry work. Hey, hey, everybody. Welcome to the Digital Forester Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Kerry Halligan. He's the GM of technology at the Woodland Solutions Group. Kerry, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Kevin. So we were joking at the start. Uh, we haven't seen each other in a really, really long time. <laughs> like two days ago at the 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 Foresters Forum in Coeur d'Alene there. But we were actually having a, a chuckle because as we were getting set up, I was like, Gary, your camera looks like a little bit blurry. And your response to fix the solution was to? Simply unplug and replug. <laughs> so when in doubt, everyone, the reboot still works perfectly. Just unplug, replug, and, and magically everything works works great. Yeah. So thanks for joining. I know we just saw each other a couple of days ago. We didn't have that much time to chat because, again, at a conference, everyone's wheeling and dealing and chatting with people and connecting with uh, old friends and, and new friends. But I'm really excited to have this conversation with you because, again, like we've been around long enough uh, and in some respects, you know, uh, similar uh, career patterns in terms of working in the mapping industry and then doing some really cool science and technology. Um, but maybe to kick us off, maybe uh, introduce us to why a PhD at University of California at Santa Barbara. Was that always part of the plan or was this something that it was just a journey like some of us that that like the ivory towers in academia? How did we end up there? How did we end up there? That's a great question. It certainly wasn't a part of a plan or no plan that I knew about. Um, you know, really, I would say it's a very organic evolution. You know, I got a degree in forest ecology from Western Washington University in Bellingham, Washington. Um, and after that, I spent about a decade in the field doing every manner of forest or vegetation field work, even some stints doing wildlife research. So I spent time working for the Forest Service and for Oregon State uh, Forest Sciences Lab. I, I even went down to Costa Rica and spent uh, about a year doing tropical forest ecology. I was thought I was going to get into studying epiphytes and uh, things like that. Um, ended up in Yellowstone, though, uh, doing a combination of wildlife research and vegetation research. And, you know, I think the common theme through all of it is we would go out to a particular place in the woods or out in the, uh, you know, sagebrush. And we'd take a ton of field measurements and just, you know, sometimes out there with calipers, taking very detailed measurements, characterizing the vegetation structure, the species dynamics, the ecological aspects of it. But it was always a point. And we'd come back and have, you know, binders full of data or data loggers and databases, and we're filling it all up. But there were all these points on the landscape. And it was really hard to then write the report or the paper and weave it together into the big story. It was that context. How do you how do you extrapolate from the data? And while I was in Yellowstone, there were a lot of people out there doing remote sensing work and flying all kinds of great sensors. Uh, you know, it it became where Yellowstone was like a test bed for new sensor technology because you could calibrate off these really cool geothermal features. You know, Mammoth Hot Springs is bright and white, so it's great for calibrating. Uh, optical remote sensing. And then there's all these thermal pools so you can calibrate thermal sensors. And so we had access to all this great remote sensing data. So the opportunity came across that, you know, hey, you could pursue this remote sensing, go get a master's and eventually a PhD. Really the goal was to be able to take all those point measurements that we've been taking and all this really fine detailed information and now be able to use remote sensing to establish the patterns 
across the landscape, see where things are in common. You really could make maps that had meaning and notice where those anomalies were. So, so that was it for me is how do we get from this really fine point-based information to landscape level analysis, which is what everybody was really, you know, craving out of the science, but it's hard to do that with just the field data. Yeah, yeah. And and so where where did that that interest or passion maybe come from? Was this something you know, curated when you're a, a young boy or our parents, there's an influence or, or was there a, a moment uh, that you can trace back to this interest of forest ecology and fieldwork and measurements and uh, that kind of pulled it all together? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think probably one influential thing from my past is I grew up in a family that had a sailboat and we would spend uh, a couple of weeks every summer sailing and we'd sail up into uh, British Columbia and and so there was this ritual where every evening we'd be pouring over the charts, planning out, hey, where do we want to go tomorrow? And and my family always wanted to anchor out. So we would be, you know, exploring out into these little, you know, lesser known areas, finding bays and going up little channels. And so I think in a lot of ways, I always loved that, you know, lo loved maps and loved that, that sense of exploration. And so, you know, as I got older, that led to, you know, doing hiking and backpacking and mountain climbing and oftentimes going off trail just to explore the landscape and navigate the terrain. Yeah. So with that came a love of nature and interest in biology and ecology. But then weaving that back into mapping really was 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 the great part for me, you know, studying GIS and remote sensing and getting to sort of, you know, extend from those little points that you visit back to that map context, that sense of exploration, you know. Yeah, for sure. And so looking at your your LinkedIn profile in the career, it, it looks like you spent a bit of time in the mapping space and with Sanborn. Maybe tell me more about what you were doing there. And and uh, was it a transition point in the career, you know, working for the mapping company and then moving full tilt into more of the software technology on the forestry side? Um, or, or was it, again, something organic as you're doing that, your interest maybe just changed uh, directions? Yeah, yeah, great question. Well, you know, when I was finishing up my PhD, I loved the work I was doing, um, and it was focused on GIS and remote sensing, but increasingly it was focused on software development. You know, as, as you're well aware, if you want to do anything innovative in science, especially if you're doing it, you know, uh, early 2000s, you really have to be doing some sort of software development. And whether you're, you know, scripting something in R or Python, or whether you're writing full-blown server applications in Java or C Sharp, you really just have to be developing your, your own tools because that's where innovation happens. And so for me, I realized as I was doing my work, I, I ended up writing a, a software package called Viper Tools, which was a which was a plug into the Envy application. Um, and it was for you know doing sort of advanced hyperspectral analysis. We were doing multiple multiple end member spectral mixture analysis. See, I still can't even say that without um, hiccups. But anyhow, so that's what we were we were developing new software for that. And what I realized as I was developing those tools and helping my colleagues do their analysis uh, of of hyperspectral imagery and doing image fusion and things that. I really love developing the tools and helping other people be successful with those tools. And it dawned on me after a while that I was a little bit more of an engineer than a scientist. And I realized I didn't really want to stay in academia. And I was looking for something in the corporate world where people were really 
you know, seeking solutions, building out new capabilities, yet still tied in with, you know, that love of remote sensing and advanced sensor technology and, you know, geospatial analysis. And so my major professor, Dar Roberts, was on the science advisory board for Sanborn Map Company. And so he said, you know, I think you should come and talk to the folks at Sanborn. They're, they're, they're definitely interested in innovation. They're interested in some of the things you're doing. So I, I was able to connect with them and they essentially carved out a position for me. And so I was the, the head of research and development there and um, ended up leading the software development team. And you know, we did certainly some of the things that I had been doing, doing uh, spectral analysis, vegetation mapping and things like that. But they were also doing lots of really just cool, interesting, innovative things. So I worked a lot on developing new software for doing 3D modeling of uh, urban areas. And, you know, how do you how do you take the things coming out of the traditional CAD process of of defining, you know, 3D shapes through, you know, stereo photos and all, all of that. But how do you now get imagery and street level textures applied to these images and build these immersive 3D urban models and things. And so, um, so yeah, we just did really interesting, fun work there. And so I was there from 2007 until I guess 2011 is when I, when I left Sambor. Yeah. Very cool. Very cool. And I, it always amazes me that it's often in business who we know sometimes that opens the doors for us. <laughs> into different situations and that's why i always joke network 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 you know when you yeah. do events even if you meet one new cool person like that's a success in my books you, you just never know um, what that person uh, can do for you going forward so i'm dying to know because not everyone knows how to code or do software development yet alone lead a team of needy nerdy engineers murky mm -hmm. people so how did that come about? Was that just how your brain works and you're able to pick up the coding or understand the the semantics of the different languages and then apply it into the syntax? But but how how did that come about? Or or was there some other angle, someone you knew or a parent that that came from that space? But how did how did it, how did that skill set come about? Yeah, well, I certainly don't have a computer science degree uh, and and didn't do any formal training in it. It really came out of um, you know the need from the analysis perspective. Like I said, you know I had access to just amazing remote sensing data sets. You know we had we had lidar, we had uh, airborne thermal uh, data, we had ground penetrating radar, and uh, I was being funded by all these great agencies, NASA and NGA, and so working with you know SAR radar people, but. But so much of it, you were really just hamstrung by the tools that were available. So there were great platforms. And so, you know, I was using ArcGIS, I was using Envy, um, but really just couldn't do the types of analysis. And so I was really interested in machine learning and how do we how do we take some of the things out of the machine learning community? You know, once again, this is I finished up my PhD in 2007. So we weren't calling it AI back then, but you know, it was um it, very similar, that maybe the starts of it. And, um, you know, so I was interested in all of that, but how could you apply that? And so there, there just wasn't the capabilities, you know, you could do some things in the statistical packages, they had some of the models, and then the remote sensing GIS software had the mechanics, you know, the pixel pushing, the ability to do analysis, but you couldn't combine those easily. And so you really just had to code it. And 
you know, that was that was advice I got from my major professor, Dar Roberts at UC Santa Barbara. And he said, you know, you're really going to, you know, be limited on the types of analysis you can do until you can actually start coding it. And I, I took that to heart and said, OK, well, how do we make that happen? And so, you know, I really, you know, worked with this group of uh, other grad students and said, you know, hey, we can we can do this together. Let's let's lift each other up and um, let's figure out how to do this development. And so we roped Dar, our major professor, to help us get started. And so he started doing these weekly, you know, seminars with us, showing us the code that he was writing. And uh, and then we all just worked together and started developing these toolkits and sharing code. Um, and like I said, at some point I realized that that part of it was was even more fun than the science, that engineering of actually solving problems, taking great ideas and models and things people were doing, but making them something that you could actually run in a routine way against image data sets, et cetera, to do the kinds of analysis. And yeah, I really just just realized I love that uh, that that problem solving nature that you can only get through writing writing software applications. For sure, for sure, hundred percent. And now I believe there is a shift to Mason, Bruce, and Gerard somewhere along the line. So maybe tell me, tell me what happened there in terms of the career career journey. Yeah, yeah. So I I switched to Mason, Bruce, and Gerard in two thousand eleven. Um, president of Woodland Solutions Group, Jim Schriever, was uh, a principal at Mason, Bruce, and Gerard, but he had been at uh, Sanborn Map Company. And so when he joined Mason, Bruce, and Gerard, he was, uh, was um, uh, you know, tasked with starting a geospatial line of business at Mason, Bruce, and Gerard. And so I was the first person he hired and said, well, hey, if we're going to grow this into a geospatial uh, line of business as a new line of business within that organization, he wanted me to help him do that. So he, he, had, he and I had worked together at Sanborn, so he asked me to come and join the Mason Bruce team, and, um, and eventually we ended up uh, getting a few other folks uh, that we'd worked together with at Sanborn. Um, and that was great. That was really new to me. You know, it's funny, but the, the forestry software was very new to me. <laughs> In retrospect, it's kind of funny because as a part of my PhD work, I guess I wrote an inventory management system and I guess I wrote a compiler, but I didn't know either of those words. You know, I was collecting all this forestry data and, you know, using GPS units and prisms and taking all these measurements. And, but I didn't know those software existed because I was coming at it from the vegetation science perspective, not forestry. And so I was, you know, reading the general technical reports on biomass equations, just coding it up myself in a database so that I could do the analysis for my degree. <laughs> and, and then I land at Mason, Bruce, and Gerard, and I say, oh, that's a thing. You know, there is this class of software that is meant for managing inventory data and, and compiling volumes, et cetera. Um, and so anyhow, so I was asked to help support those and then uh, obviously got a lot of interest in those and how we could, you know, do better, how we could, how we could develop just more powerful systems, take advantage of the, of the technology and certainly weave in the geospatial part, which was sort of woefully absent from a lot of these uh, inventory systems in the day. Yeah. Isn't it funny that you spend that many years doing a PhD and, 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 and to come out of it to realize that your, your basic data collection tools, your, your compilers, things you had written, like, 
it's actually worth something versus trying to solve climate change on your own or world hunger. It's just something like that, that, that you take for granted that actually has tremendous uh, uh, value. That's a side discussion probably around how to commercialize science out of, uh, out of universities there and why some people yeah. feel maybe we're overthinking things. Um, so I guess maybe the, the, the last step, I guess, as we do the career path is uh, Woodland Solutions Group. Tell me more about that and, uh, I believe it was a spinoff from MB&G, but then now you're also affiliated with another organization. So maybe bring us up to speed in terms of what happened there and maybe the, uh, why that 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 spinoff came and and who are the players now that are, that are uh, uh, driving uh, Woodland Solutions Group. Yeah. Yeah. So I was at Mason Bruce uh, for about 11 years and, you know, really enjoyed my time there. Great group of people. Obviously, a very well-respected name in the in the forestry industry, um, and and as I mentioned, I was really focused on the technology piece. You know, how can we take these tools that people were were using, which were fairly outdated, and really not taking advantage of the technology and the efficiencies that could be achieved with modern devices, enterprise GIS, uh, enterprise web technology, and so. We were very interested in that and solving problems that we just couldn't solve other ways via technology. You know, with several projects I can remember where, you know, somebody would come to us, you know, hey, can you, we, we need in a very short amount of time maps of this entire country or maps of this potential acquisition. And we would say, you know, physically we can't do it. We, we don't have time to print the hard copy maps and get all of this, but we, we could give this to you as a digital data set and you, and you could take it out tomorrow because we have the imagery. It's a matter of getting it into all map books or things like that. That's going to take too much time. So, you know, just over my time at Mason Bruce, we just continue to focus in on building out software solutions to meet, you know, Forrester's needs. Uh, but sometimes a software company's, you know, business model and a forestry consulting firm's business model are just different. Uh, they're just different needs. And in software, you always have to be innovating. You always have to be investing. You always have to be out there spending the costs ahead of time so that you're ahead of the market. And that's that's a very different model than in the consulting world. So. Um, so eventually we realized that it was better for us to, to go our separate ways. And so, uh, and so we did. And so in, uh, in 2022, we formed Woodland Solutions Group. And so it's primarily, uh, myself with Jim Schriever, our president and Janet Hoyt, who's the GM of operations. And so, you know, we sort of heralded this, uh, new company, got it all off the ground and we were, you know, just fortunate enough to be able to keep our team with us. So the, for the most part, the, the geospatial services group from Mason, Bruce, and Gerard became Woodland Solutions Group. And so a lot of us have worked together for, uh, you know, for a long time. Um, and so there's a great, you know, sense of trust and a lot of just, just top-notch technical skill within our team. Um, so yeah, so we've been doing that now for still under two years, but you know it's just been a great move. It's really allowed us to focus in on the things we want to focus in on, which is you know innovating and and writing the best quality software we can, and really providing that full you know software services to to our our clients. Um, but you know small businesses are hard. <laughs> And there's, there's challenges and you end up spending a lot of time uh, managing the business and that you wish you were head down doing the technical piece or meeting with your clients. And so, you know, there's an economy of scale there that's important. And so, uh, you know, so pass, lack, 
last July, we joined forces with DNA to try to take advantage of that. And so DJNA is a um, is an architecture and engineering firm, design firm out of uh, Missoula, Montana. And so they've got, I think, uh, maybe 120, 140 people. And so our group of, yeah, I think we were 18 at the time joining them. It, you know, it's it's been great. Uh, it's been great to have some of those resources and certainly in terms of managing the business and all the all the challenging things like healthcare and 401k and just, you know, accounting and all of that. So it's, it's great to be a part of a large organization. And they're just... Uh, incredible group of people. They they run a, a great business, um, and they've got all kinds of uh, you know just skilled engineers and designers, and all kinds of really exciting toys. You know, drones and lidars and <laughs> ground based uh, you know uh, lidar systems and things. And so you know, still trying to figure out how we can we can best work together and take advantage of all of that. But it's but it's a really nice uh, kind of exciting evolution for the work we're doing. Yeah, very cool, very cool. And I guess yeah. with them being uh, based in Missoula, Montana, you folks haven't had to relocate. You've been able to stay, and and I, I believe that you guys are based in the Portland area. Is that is that correct? Yeah, well, we're a hundred percent virtual uh, huh. company. Uh, Mason Bruce and Gerard was based out of Portland, so several of our folks were there in Portland. I'm based out of Portland, but just working out of a home office. Um, and then, you know, we have developers that are around the country and uh, Jim Shriver's in Colorado. Uh, in fact, the name Woodland Solutions Group comes from Woodland Park, Colorado, where he lives. Um, yeah. And so um, DJNA is different in that sense that they, you know, they do have physical offices uh, and they've got their main office in Missoula and then offices in Vancouver um, and in Denver. And so, you know, we can take advantage of that and, and meet up with those folks and use those office spaces, but we're still all working out of, out of home offices and, and virtual. And, you know, with the software development team, that's uh, that's just fine. We we work very well virtually. It's all it's all source code repositories and meetings. And, you know, that's how we communicate is via the code and working applications. You know? 100%, 100%. So so thanks for walking us through that, that your journey, your career, and, and really fascinating. I, I just see so many trends when I talk with, uh, you know, digital foresters, there's just very fascinating uh, trends and uh, similarities that I, I pull out of the stories. So maybe we'll shift gears and get into some technology. And, and so that's where some folks uh, listen and um, maybe walk me through the Woodland Solutions Group software operations, because most of them start with a mobile, uh, I might say mobile, maybe it's mobile, uh, depending potatoes, potatoes, but we got mobile maps, we got mobile map crews, we go, we got mobile map roads, uh, then we got inventory manager, and I think we have some CMS technology as well. Um, but for those who may not be familiar with Woodland Solutions Group and what you offer, um, can you give us an overview of what what it is you do and 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 the SaaS software that you offer to the the forest industry? Yeah, absolutely. You know, so at the high level, um, our our main offering that's pertinent to foresters would be our inventory management system, and it really is composed of these two applications: mobile map an inventory manager. And we started with mobile map and it really was just, you know, a, a field application for cruising timber. Uh, we call it mobile map because it is GIS based. So it's map centric. And so, you know, that, and that was really the piece that I saw surprisingly absent when I was looking at, um, you know, when I joined Mason, Bruce and Gerard, I was looking at the systems people were collecting data with. 
it's it's inherently spatial data. It's GIS. <laughs> it's real world locations. It's stands that are mapped, you know, across an ownership and then point locations. And yet people were going out there with tabular data recorders and saying, I think I'm at plot center and collecting information and not even recording where they were, let alone using a map to get there. And so with my background in software and GIS, that just didn't make any sense. And then when you throw in the remote sensing and that contextual information that people could have right there at their fingertips, I said, you know, let's let's put these things together. And so, you know, basically as soon as Esri came out with their mobile um, software development kits, it was a, 2011, about the same time that Samsung was coming out with a Galaxy Tab and then Google came out with the Google Nexus 7. And to me, just everything converged, right? We have we we have decent, affordable uh, Android devices. We we have an enterprise GIS that now is a software development kit for mobile, and then we and we have the GIS services available. So now we can transfer data back and forth. And so that really was what what kicked us off in in a big way, developing a new solution. And so. We, we released that um, at SAF in 2013. So we just had our 10th year anniversary of that. And you know we just started by saying, hey, look at what all this technology could do. You as a forester could take the same maps that you have in your map book, but you could take it out on this small place and you can interactively query to see all your stand information. Um, and as we started putting that in front of uh, our forester's hands, our clients started seeing that. Hey, hey, could we get one of those built for our forest. And, you know, once that happened, why can't we collect data with it? Why can't we cruise timber with it? Why can't we check cruise timber with it? Why can't we do, you know, statistical analysis out in the field while we're check cruising timber? <laughs> you know, and it just, it, it just continued to add upon itself. Um, so that's, that's mobile map. Uh, and that basically does everything a forester should need to do out in the woods in terms of data collection, navigation, um, analysis, data quality control, etc. And then the companion to that is the web application inventory manager. So it's a cloud-hosted web application, basically does what foresters need before they go out in the field and what they need to do after coming back. So they can do their whole cruise design, they can do the cruise management in terms of assigning work to people, rebalancing, you know, utilization, tracking projects, and then doing the full analysis, whether that means, uh, you know, doing a compilation or quantitative check cruise scoring or whether they're outputting it out to a third party system like FPS or FBS or T cruise. Do we integrate with all of those systems and just try to bridge between what Esri does really well, which is, you know, providing a secure, scalable, you know, you know powerful geospatial service framework and what a forester needs to do, which is quick, easy access to data collection with, you know, very specific, you know, crude specs, data models, et cetera, and trying to bridge the gap as well to the systems that people already love and use. You know, people are very much invested in their analysis platforms, whether it's whether it's T-Cruise or FPS or FDS. You know, you can't just change the numbers in people's inventory or say it's okay to calculate your carbon using this other tool. So, you know, people are very invested in both their Esri technology as well as these analytic systems. And so, you know, our philosophy is don't recreate the wheel. <laughs> Let those systems do what they do really well, but try to bridge the gap between those. Just make it really easy for people to get data from their GIS out in the field 
quickly and easily collect high quality data, get it back up into an enterprise secure data store, RTIS, and then feed that into whatever tools they want. And if it's our tools and they want to do the compilation right in Inventory Manager, great, that works fine. If they don't and they want to go out to their existing uh, analytics system, that's fantastic as well. So we really, you know, when it comes to implementing this, uh, whether that's for a state agency, a large, you know, a TMO, or whether it's a small operation, it we really, a lot of it gets down to the, how do you want to do that merchandising? How are you going to do the compilation? What tools are you using now? Which, which ones do you want to replace? And which ones do you just want to make, you know, easier to feed full of data and easier to take those results and, and store them? Yeah, very, very cool. And and you had mentioned, you know, you'd 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 been at this for well now over 10 years. And and it struck me at at the Forces for Forum in Curtilane. I, I think you were giving a demo where you're talking about um, you know, the calipers being sync with your technology that you you didn't even have to input the data. And, and that showed to me like a lot of thought in terms and speaking with foresters. Uh, but Along those lines, I'm I'm dying to know, like you're introducing this new technology to a group of people that generally are slower to adopt technology. I'm choosing my words carefully. Carrie's giggling on the, the video side. Um, how did it go? And and were there certain tactics or or tricks that that you had to use to maybe maybe drag the forester uh, to water, if you will, to to get them to buy in, or was it something that was just kind of organic? People are like, yeah, I get this, and yeah, let let's go, let's go. Because if I'm if I'm if I remember your talk um, just last week, like this is technology used across multiple states across the lower forty eight, as you mentioned, Timo's REITs, you know, a whole span of contractors, like like it's widely adopted. But was it smooth sailings from the start, or or were there some no. speed bumps? <laughs> No, you know, and, and we really didn't have a vision of where where this would end up when we started. You know, like I said, um, the the opportunity was there. Uh, there was a big gap between what was possible and what people were doing back in, you know, 2011 when I started at, at Mason, Bruce and Gerard. And, you know, so it was clear that there was an opportunity to improve things, improve things for foresters, improve the data quality. So we started building these tools really to help us, you know, manage contracts, be efficient in the field, be effective, um, deal with the high cost of existing, you know, Windows mobile devices and the fact that some of those were getting a little bit old. <laughs> and so, you know, um, I, I'm always thinking about how innovation can happen and take advantage of, you know, new trends in technology. So we just started applying that with the thought that, well, we could make things better for the people that we knew who wanted those. Um, but we got pretty excited about it. So that's why we, you know, did this workshop back in 2013 to say, hey, hey, everybody, look at what's look at what's possible now. And, you know, I would say we had some early adopters that really helped take it and make it a success. So, you know, Bruce Ripley, and he certainly falls into that category. <laughs> and he would give us all kinds of free consulting and see every, you know, iteration of the application and say, well, I think you could improve it this way. If you did that, you know, I think we could buy into this. And so there were certainly early adopters out there that gave us critical feedback and folks that were, you know, veterans in the industry who had cruised for decades and decades and said, listen, you know, this isn't going to be practical until it does this or it, it works that way. And, you know, the first iteration uh, was not successful. It was a totally different technology, 
it wasn't fast enough. You couldn't enter in data fast enough to keep up with the way people were used to doing it. So, you know, back to the drawing board, try the next thing. And then we we got something that that worked. Um, but it was certainly slow in the beginning. And, you know, I think the the pushback we often got was, you know, hey, nobody's going to go out there and cruise timber with, with a phone. You know, that's just not going to happen. We're going to use paper and pencil because it's the way we've always done it. Or we maybe would use like a five pound brick, you know, like a CMT or, you know, something from, you know. That was the only way that people thought about uh, about what what field data collection systems look like. Um, but over time, that changed as people saw the power. And especially, I think the the mapping part of it really helped people embrace it that they could go out there with a high resolution aerial image and a topo map and be able to zoom in and zoom out and really efficiently plan their day, navigate the plots, have the, have it tell them when they're at the plot. So they're removing bias, just improving efficiency. And then the kicker, you get out of the woods, you get back to the office and you just press upload. Instead of having to, you know, key in stuff off of your data sheet or cable up your device and convert it from this format to that format, get it into Excel and then try to shove it into here and in this database. And people were so used spending all of this time that when you removed that at the start of their field effort and the end of their field effort by just saying, hey, you're just synchronizing data. I think a lot of people really, you know, that that means they can spend more time in the woods. That means they can focus on data quality instead of just the mechanics of moving data around. That means they can get the answers much quicker because they can get it near real time as soon as those data are uploaded. And so those kinds of things I think really have um, have been very influential in convincing people that this approach to new technology is worth it. It makes people's, uh, you know, lives easier, especially the parts they don't like. You know, a lot of foresters, they, they want to be out in the woods, um, you know, actually collecting the data and observing and managing actively. They don't want to be sitting in front of a computer keying stuff in or, you know, wrestling between file formats. So just making all of that easy uh, I think it's been sort of the the biggest thing that's that's helped the adoption of our system. Yeah. But also, sure. you know, I mean, state agencies need robust, reliable systems that they can count on. And so, you know, as 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 you mentioned, we've we've done a lot of work with state agencies. I think we have eleven state agencies now that are using our system, and some of them are quite large. You know, with over a hundred users, um, and it's just really important to them to have these very specific processes instead of ad hoc workflows for maintaining QCing data, getting data into the systems. And so that's that I think has been another real key part of it is that we can say, hey, this is the plan. This is how the system works end to end. Yeah, very, very cool. Was there some moment or like maybe from a technology point of view or or some event in the news, I don't know that, you can think back to and go, you know, this this was the moment it clicked for the the force community and their understanding of how your technology would transform how they actually go about doing cruising, or was it just progression, gradual baby steps, baby steps until momentum was built? Was there something that pops to mind in terms of like, gee, was this happened and boom, the light bulb went off with uh, everyone? You know, there's, I think. I wouldn't say a light bulb going off or a boom, you know, but I do think there are, if you look at sort of the timeline from when we started playing with this technology in about 2012 and where we are today, 
when you look at that timeline, there are a few events along there that I think are pretty, um, you know, there are inflection points. Um, and so certainly some of the early ones with some devices, things like the Google Nexus was a big one where you also had this very inaffordable or, or very affordable, inexpensive device. Now, is it what everybody for sure wanted out in the woods? Absolutely not. It's not a rugged device at all, but but it was a very affordable device that had a really nice looking screen. And the Galaxy, Samsung Galaxies were like that too. So there were some things like that. Um, and then there were some that that were surprising in their impact. So when Esri came out with their collector product that's now Field Maps, you know, we had several people uh, approach us and say, hey, you know, looks like this is the end of the road for your mobile map product, right? Because Esri just, you know, uh, just came out with collector. And so why is somebody gonna, you know, come to you and and buy a totally separate uh, solution? And uh, and and we were, you know, we thought that might be the case. Um, and it it was interesting because the exact opposite effect happened. What that did is that helped people in the general forestry community who were comfortable with Esri and um, using it as a as a core business system see that using mobile devices using enterprise GIS, whether it was ArcGIS server or portal or ArcGIS online, which was pretty new to people, was seeing that that was a viable, secure, scalable enterprise system added a lot of street street credibility, I think, to what we had been pushing for. And early adopters were fine with using a tablet and syncing their data and, and understanding about why that was secure, why that was a great efficiency gain, and why that was a safer way than even emailing shapefiles from a security perspective. But I think when Collector came out and Esri started communicating that at a broader scale to, to the forestry industry, it really helped people get comfortable with the idea. So instead of us losing business, we saw the opposite. In fact, we we would always say, you know, our best clients are ones that have been experimenting with using Collector, you know, because that means they've wrapped their heads around the change from file-based email or FTPing of files and constantly converting things in and out to, ah, I could use an enterprise database. I could use web services to communicate. I can use a mobile device, whether I want an expensive ruggedized one or whether I want a consumer grade. This is a viable, you know, real workflow in forestry. And so I think that really, really helped things take off for us and kind of removed a lot of the barriers that people who might have been concerned with that. Yeah, it almost sounds like it validated some of your early thinking and and just cemented that you were well ahead of the curve in terms of what what some others were doing. Absolutely. And so as the as the general manager of technology at Woodland Solutions Group, and we think about um, you know, cruising and, and the technology that you've built, what what does sh short term what gets you excited maybe short term? Is it, you know, being able to talk? measurements is it um slam lidar and measuring in a different way is it new airborne technology or is it more boots on the ground doing different things but maybe in the next you know two to five year time frame like is there certain something you're keeping an eye on and um in terms of how you're gonna shape the the mobile map technology and which way it goes yeah, well, it's a great question. And certainly I don't have a crystal ball that can say which way do I think the industry will go and which which technologies will will end up panning out. But I think I'm really encouraged 
by the openness to new technology that I see. Um, and I think, um, you know, when we talked about, you know, these barriers that were there in the past and how there were these, you know, critical points in which helped people rethink about the role of technology in the woods, I think that those have had lasting impact. And I think people are uh, across the industry are much more open to thinking about new technology and seeing the excitement that people have around drones um, is an interesting one because it's empowering individual people to collect their data on their time frame and, and seeing the tools that the software industry, especially the remote sensing software industry is building to make that available that you could process that. You know, to me, that's a really, a really great sign of a change in the way um, uh, people in general, but I think the industry is embracing technology. And, you know, that's what gets me excited. It's not any particular one. Um, it's more about all of the innovative thinkers, all the new technology and the price point and the miniaturization of the technology and how these things can work together. Um, because, you know, there's there's a, there's need for all of it. I think that's the important thing. We we need much much better um, you know field technology. We need uh, greater efficiencies. We need better models. We need we need it all. And the barriers to implementing it. I mean that's what's really come down from a cost perspective on on new technology on devices. Uh, the things that we can we can build. You know for. <laughs> For standalone printed circuit boards, you know all of the great, you know, uh, system on a chip systems, you know, Arduino and all these technologies. It's really amazing what you can do now, which you just couldn't do before. And so, to me, that it's that innovation and the openness that you're seeing as as young foresters with more familiarity and comfort in DIY technology enter into the the community and and are open to this trying this that that's what's exciting and seeing the new players that are saying hmm, maybe we could approach this whole inventory thing from a totally different angle what what if we you know use uh light ground-based systems what if we're using drones what if we're confusing those things um that that's the exciting part and you know what we really want to do is just to make sure that we're helping remove the pain points because there's lots of them. There's still lots of barriers and each one of these technologies needs people to focus on growth in that area. And so we really see ourselves as an integrator and helping enable. And I, and I think that kind of speaks to the comment that you made about you know, what I was showing about how we're integrating with laser rangefinders and things and, and how if it has a magnetometer, you really can be doing a STEM map using that technology, getting the distance and azimuth as well as you know, the tree heights and just making that easy because that in and of itself is a great tool, but what people want is the measurement stored in their GIS. So facilitating that communication and connectivity and fusion of data is where that's what gets me excited. You know, how do we how do we bring this stuff together and make it easy enough to use that people will take advantage of it? Yeah, and thinking of that, you you, you touched on a, a neat point there of of the worker and the the generational change. Um, how much do you think that is? The drive is it the younger workforce driving the change? Is it um, societal acceptance that we should just be able to do this with our smartphones? Um, but to what extent, thinking of you know, we always talk, we always hear you know the the shortage and labor in the workforce uh, across you know right across the supply chain as as we think about or the business of forestry. But how much do you think it, is it the young people 
driving that change in in forestry because they're as you know foresters as you said you know you, they don't go to school to to study forestry so they can sit it behind a desk and play with a computer they want to be out in the bush uh maybe not talking to anybody you know they're okay with the 14 hours not talking to anyone they love it truthfully uh but how much do you think it's that generational push that's the the, the millennials and the the gen z's or z's that are driving some of these these pushes towards innovation or or maybe it's not them and it's just the natural do you think it's just the natural evolution of an industry modernizing yeah i think it's a good question it's probably a little bit of uh of all of that um you know i know for me i i've oftentimes been on the on the bleeding edge of technology and that's not always a good place to be you know i i was pretty convinced in the late 90s that lidar was you know, just around the corner was going to be cost effective and operational. Well, why? Because I was playing with that technology and was saying, hey, lasers can measure trees, you know, from the air. <laughs> it seems so obvious that, of course, we would be doing this in just a few years. And, you know, here we sit, you know, 25 years later and, you know, people are doing it and they're doing it operationally and they're doing it well. But it took some time to get from that theoretical into the operational. And so I think with some of these technologies, it, it is just that the technology is finally mature enough and it has been around enough that the cost, it's becoming cost effective. And so people who've been skeptically watching it for decades is saying, eh, okay, I'm seeing this pan out. I'm seeing other people are finding this a cost effective way to do this. We better give it a try too. And and now, if you give it a try today, some of these newer these newer technologies like like airborne lidar, you find that there's there's great tools and workflows and and results you can get. If you were doing it like when I was trying to do that, um, it was painful, and uh, you had to write your own tools. And so, for me, a lot of it is that things like remote sensing have finally caught up with the promise that they were making 20 or 30 years ago. And so the barriers have been removed. And so it's finally becoming something people can, can cost effectively use and it fits in their models. Having uh, a bunch of uh, you know, younger people in the work, workforce that are open to technology and innovation certainly helps. You know, it removes that barrier, um, but it really wouldn't be happening if those technologies weren't uh, you know, already ready for the marketplace and have been you know, tested and matured over time. Yeah. Well, you, you, you don't like the hundreds of DVDs with uh, LIDAR data on text files that's in the corner. I know it's in the corner of your home office collecting <laughs> dust. Or you don't want to pull those out and manually <laughs> load them into a DVD drive to then figure out where you're going to actually put no. it on which hard drive. No, not, not done, no. done those days. Yeah. I, I hear you on that one. Yeah. So, so looking forward, what, what is a 20, 20, 50, in 20, the year 2050, what does a Forester look like to you? So I'm going to stretch your thinking as GM technology and say, you know, if we go at that 10-year mark and beyond, you know, what 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 are you keeping an eye on as a digital Forester and and maybe dreaming that we all evolve or progress to? Um, is there what does a, a digital Forester in the the year 2050 look like to you? Well, I think what I hope it looks like is that the technology kind of gets out of the way and we spend less time talking about it because it really has become uh, enough of a seamless part of what we're doing that we can focus on 
what most people love about it, which is the knowledge that they have about forests, about forest health, about all the challenges that we have in managing things like, you know, the wildland urban interface and thinking about carbon and thinking about forest health uh, for the long term and sustainability. That's what I hope. And that the technology isn't even as much of a topic because we've got it good enough that it's doing its job. It's facilitating the decision-making. It's facilitating the knowledge and understanding. And so far, we haven't really been able to do that. We're, you know, we're still developing that technology to still, you know, really basically just describe the physical structure. And that can help inform decision-making, but it doesn't make the decisions. It still just characterizes the physical aspects. And so that's important. And that's obviously an area where I've been focusing my attention, but the technology is not the, the end game. I, I love it. I love, I love building it and integrating, but it's really when, and I mentioned this, I guess, earlier, it's, it's the integration piece that's so fun. It's taking these different technologies, but building them into a system that gets out of the way so a forester can get out in the woods and do the work that they care about. So to me, that's the apex. That's where we're trying to get to. Um, you know, we're taking baby steps there and trying to make it easier for foresters to take advantage of all these technologies. Um, and when we're successful, it would be because they don't need to think about them and they can they can focus on being a forester and the technology takes care of the, the nuts and bolts, the measurements, the models, et cetera. And yeah, that's my hope. Yeah, <laughs> I yeah. hope we'll get there. <laughs> yeah, it's funny you say that because there's so many technologies we, we use on an everyday basis that we don't spend the time trying to understand or explain the microwave heats my food beyond that, you know, basic physics, understand what's happening. But beyond that, I don't really spend much time thinking um, uh, about it. So that's a, that's a great uh, point there. And and maybe a fun exercise you and I should do as a competition when we approach a new, new, a friendly competition, when we approach a new uh, prospect or someone interested in technology, we should just flash up one slide deck that shows Hey, this is how you're doing it now. But if you adopt our technology, we can add this many hours to your day back in the bush and see how quickly that converts, right? Versus value right. driver. What I can add like six more hours in the bush and not talk to anybody. Like, hell yeah, sign me up. It doesn't matter how much it costs. Yeah. You mentioned a keyword there. So with the time that we we have left, we we've been going through whizzing by the the hour here. You, you mentioned carbon. And I know again, we just saw each other last week at uh, in Carter Lane, and you gave a talk about carbon. Um, what does carbon mean to you? And are there certain patterns or trends that you're, you're, you're seeing with your client base? I know some people on the ESG front, not maybe more lukewarm on, on that, that buzzword. Um, we've seen cycles um, with different players, different registries. I, I'm not sure I'd say boom bust as opposed to maybe volatility in some of the players in the landscape. But when you hear carbon, what what does what's your immediate thought or where does your 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 head gravitate to in terms of what it means? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, in some sense, carbon is new because uh, because of you know where we are current state of you know climate change it's new because of politics it's new because of the monetization around carbon but in some sense it's not new uh it's it's really just biomass um you know and and when i was doing my phd work it was really focused on forest structure from a, a wildfire risk perspective and really what we were doing was looking at carbon but from a fuels perspective the carbon that would burn and and therefore drive fire behavior 
So it's a very old topic, which is how much stuff is out there. It's just now we're trying to quantify that stuff beyond just the merchantable wood within a tree. We're trying to get all of it. Uh, but people have been doing that for decades and decades. And so, you know, my focus on it really is to make sure that for whatever your motivation is, if you're trying to better characterize a forest in terms of the biomass or carbon that are out there, that we help you do that. We try to take advantage of the technology. We try to take advantage of best practices so that you understand, you know, what are the constraints in 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 measuring and reporting on carbon what for whatever your your purposes are whether you're trying to target a particular registry and sell you know carbon offsets like or whether you're just trying to understand you know how much how much carbon is stored on the land that you own or manage i'm focused on that technology piece and the workflows and the protocols and the crew specs to help make it easier because it is confusing. And, you know, for, once again, foresters shouldn't have to know every subtle last bit of the registries and the markets and what's a broker and what's a project developer. I really want them to be able to focus on what they do really well, which is characterize forests out in the woods. And so providing those tools and trying to streamline those processes, coming up with best practices and guidelines is really where, where I try to focus on it. Um, remove the barriers to, you know, collecting high quality carbon data, regardless of what happens in the short or long term in terms of political decisions, economic decisions, management decisions. Uh, let's make sure that we're doing as foresters the best job that that we can do in terms of efficiently and accurately collecting that information. And I think I think we're things are going to change a lot um, in the short term in terms of our understanding uh, about carbon and how to effectively manage carbon, et cetera. But everything we do, best practices as forestry professionals, as forestry technology pro providers, is just going to help that by providing good information. For sure, for sure. So as as we look to wind down, if we were you know as a true digital forester here, and you were to to meet uh, young Carrie Halligan before before he became Dr. Carrie Halligan. Is there a pro tip, uh, a key pro tip that, or one pro tip that you would want to impart to that young Carrie based on the knowledge and wisdom and, and life experiences that you have today that you think other young digital forcers would benefit from? That's a good question. Um, you know, I think the main thing would be to follow your curiosity and don't be scared of the complex stuff. For me in my career, it it appeared to everybody else that I was I, I was maybe wandering and doing different careers from you know boots on the ground, vegetation science at Mount St. Helens to you know studying old growth in Oregon for the long-term ecological research team to down in Costa Rica. But in all of it, I was really following the interesting topics, uh, interesting topics in vegetation science, et cetera, which led to pursuing technology as a way to explore those deeper. And for me, it's it's turned out to be, you know, uh, a, a very fruitful, interesting career. And so I would probably encourage young Kerry Halligan to do exactly what he did, which is don't try to stick to to, to uh straight of a path, don't don't assume that you know how this is gonna turn out, but stay focused on the things that are the most interesting, the most challenging and, and follow that curiosity. Very good, very good. 
Well, so for those, uh, based on that, for those who might want to follow up with you uh, based on something they've heard on this podcast, or just to learn more about the mobile map uh, software and the inventory software that Woodland Solutions Group um, has available, what's the best way for folks to reach you? Is it email, website, LinkedIn? Is there a better way? Better way? Uh, all of those would work. Uh, WoodlandSolutionsGroup.com would take you to our uh, our website where you could read more about our software. And there's links there to uh, get in touch with us. That's probably the easiest. Awesome. Awesome. Well, hey, I saw you last week. It was great to have this conversation, although now it's back to virtual, even though we we're in person uh, just last week. But it was great to see you last week in person. Great to have this conversation with you. And I'm, I'm glad you're able to carve out some time for this guy to, to share some of your thoughts on, on where you think technology is going and, and uh, the changes and the evolution of the digital forester as we go. So thanks so much. And uh, looking forward to seeing you next time, next go around. Sounds good, Kevin. Thanks for having me. Enjoying the conversation.